All right, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Citizens. Uh, for those of you who are new or visiting for the first time, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the pastors here on staff at the church. Uh, it's so great to see you all here. We survived a hurricane here in Los Angeles, so that's great. It's great to see everyone. Um, I have the privilege, as always, of bringing us God's Word. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 12, we're just going to look at uh, verses 20 to 24. Acts chapter 12, verses 20 to 24. And if you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version today. Acts chapter 12, verses 20 to 24. This is the reading of God's word. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us uh, as we begin. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Would you open our hearts and our ears to receive what you would have for us today? We entrust this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, today we're going to land uh, the plane for our sermon series in the book of Acts. I mentioned this in week one, but we're actually only looking at the first half of the book of Acts. Um, at some point, I would love to preach you the second half as well, but we thought Acts 12 would be a good landing point because um, this is the moment, there's a clear shift in the story uh, from the ministry of Peter in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to now the ministry of Paul, which is going to take the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Okay, and if you've been following along with us for the past few months, you know that this book is essentially the origin story of the church. This first community of believers uh, who didn't have much um, institutional power or resources or status. Um, it was just a group of ragtag followers of Jesus, ordinary people like you and me, proclaiming uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and then living like they actually believed it to be true. And I think when we read um, stories in the Bible, we often forget how hard it would have been to be a follower of Jesus in those times. It's very hard to be the first one to do anything. You know, you and I have the benefit of generations and generations uh, of saints and people who believed in Christ before us, but these were the first people, you know, who saw the resurrected Jesus, watched Jesus ascend to the right hand of the Father, and if we think it's hard to be Christian today, I mean, we're talking about a group of people who literally had to watch their friends and family be stoned to death, they watched them be thrown into prison. Uh, at every turn, they faced persecution and opposition, and yet who continued to proclaim the message of Jesus because to them there was nothing else worth living for. And last week, DC preached from Acts 12, uh, where we read about yet another instance of persecution, the execution of James, brother of John, and the imprisonment of Peter. Now keep in mind, these are two of Jesus' disciples, so these are two of Jesus' closest friends. One is dead and one is in prison about to be dead. 
Okay, and, and just one note about that. If you think following Jesus is a ticket to an easy, comfortable life, not even Jesus' best friends got that. Okay, there is nothing in Scripture that would lead us to believe that a life with Jesus is an easy one. You know, a lot of times I meet people who say like, oh man, I'm in, unemployed and things are really hard. I really should go back to church. Right? As though there is something about following Jesus that will then put everything in life and all of our circumstances in order. And yet two of Jesus' closest friends at the beginning of Acts 12, the leaders of the church, one is dead and one is in prison. And we learned last week that this persecution was ordered by King Herod of Agrippa. Okay, this is the grandson of King Herod the Great. Um, this is the same King Herod that killed his own son, uh, Herod, uh, Herod of Agrippa's father because he thought he was disloyal. This is the same King Herod the Great who ordered the massacre of all boys under the age of two when Jesus was born. And so it goes without saying that generational trauma is a real thing because Herod of Agrippa is just as bad, if not worse, than his grandfather. Okay, this is a guy who's clawed his way to the top. This is a guy who is hell-bent on keeping and protecting his power at all costs, who now has all kinds of influence and authority, and like his grandfather, is going to do everything in his power to squash any movement or any person that might threaten his authority, which is why he wants to destroy the church. Because in that time, the church was basically rattling the status quo, and so he said, no, th these people can't come into power, and what better way to destroy the church than to destroy its leaders? Right, which is why James is dead, which is why Peter is in prison. But as we read last week, thankfully, Peter's able to escape prison, which sends Herod into a rage. He starts killing his own soldiers, and then we read that he travels down to Caesarea, and this is kind of where we pick up the story today, okay, in Acts 12, verse 20. In verse 20, we read that Herod was also apparently angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So we don't know exactly why he's angry, so he's just He's clearly an angry man, okay? He's very angry all the time. Um, what we do know is that Tyre and Sidon were two chief cities of the ancient Phoenician people. They had a long history of trading with the nation of Israel that goes back thousands of years. The, they kind of needed Israel for their food supply. And so um, for whatever reason, they've pissed off Herod of Agrippa and Herod has cut off trade. And so what's happening here, to give us some context at the end of Acts 12, is that the people of Tyre and Zidon have come to Herod to beg him for peace on behalf of their country so that their people can eat, okay, so that they don't starve to death. And so we read that on an appointed day, Herod puts on his most expensive robes, he takes his seat on the throne, and he begins to deliver this grand speech to these people who've come to beg for his mercy. Now, the first century Jewish historian, Josephus, writes about this as well. And just a, like, just a side note, I think it's pretty awesome. A lot of people think, like, how do we know the stories in the Bible are true? There are actually primary documents of historians who lived in those times writing about these stories that confirm what we're reading in the Bible actually happened. So I think it's really cool. If you have time, you probably don't, but go read Josephus, first century historian, his antiquities. It's really great, but we get this exact story and in it, he adds some more detail, and he talks about how the robe Herod was wearing that day was made of pure silver from top to bottom. 
And he sp- not only that, he specifically scheduled that speech to take place right at, the, right at sunrise. So as the sun would rise, the light of the sun would glisten off his robe. It would blind everyone in the eyes and make him look greater than he was. Okay, so this is a guy who's clearly in love with the sound of his own voice. He's milking this moment. Um, he wants everyone to see how great he is. He wanted everyone in the room to know he was Alpha, and the people there treated him as such, because we read that as he began to speak, they began to shout, the voice of a God and not of a man. But then something interesting happens. We read in verse 23 that immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last This man, who just a moment ago looked absolutely invincible, a man who by all standards had reached the pinnacle of human achievement, a man who held the fate of thousands of lives in the palm of his hand, a man who at the time was receiving the applause and praises of the entire world, in an instant is struck down and eaten by worms, and they watch the man rot before their very eyes. Isn't it funny how much we buy into the delusion that our status and our wealth and all the shiny things we buy somehow makes us invincible, but in a moment, all of it can look so small and trivial. There was a meme going around this past week after the hurricane. Um, I don't know where the hurricane happened, okay? I I actually don't know. Um, But after the hurricane, and it was a, a luxury car Um, collector, the most exotic cars in his garage. And there was a picture of him standing on his front lawn, and he had his, like, Lambo and his McLaren both flipped upside down, weeds in it, full halfway with water. He had, like, fast food bags coming out of the trunk. And and his face, I mean, his face, the the sad look on his face, and it was so interesting that here's a man who probably thought, I'm going to amass all this stuff, and this is going to make me invincible. And in a moment, a gust of wind and some rain, and all of a sudden, everything he has looks so small and so trivial. Now, you have to ask the question as you're reading this, why does God strike Herod down in that moment? Is it because he's rich? and successful and powerful. Well, that doesn't make sense because there are a lot of people in the Bible who are rich, successful, and powerful, who had a great relationship with God. Joseph, David, Solomon. God blessed them a lot. What's different about King Herod of Agrippa? Well, we just read it. It says, because he did not give God the glory. Because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. In the Old Testament, the word glory comes from a Hebrew word kavod, which means weight or significance or matter, something that's heavy, right? And so when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about God's weightiness, his significance, his worth. We're talking about the sum total of all of his attributes, his love, his beauty, his kindness, his goodness, his power, his holiness. God's glory is who God is at his core. It's God's essence. And so when the Bible says the whole earth is filled with his glory, what the Bible is saying is there is no inch of this earth. There is no place you could possibly look, no place your eyes could 
could possibly travel that you wouldn't get a glimpse of God's glory. When you're standing at the Grand Canyon and you're looking out and you see that breathtaking view and you're just like, I am so small, you're getting a taste of God's glory. When you eat something so good and your eyes shut and you're like, this is glory. You're getting a taste of God's glory. When you watch an athlete do superhuman, like do things that like you could never imagine a human doing, contorting their bodies in crazy ways, you're getting a glimpse of God's glory. When you listen to a song or you look at a painting and it does something to you, you're overwhelmed with emotion. You're experiencing a taste of God's glory. And one thing you realize when you read scripture is that God is passionately consumed with his glory and he will share his glory with no one. Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Meaning there is no one I will give more weight to than myself. And you could say, well, God seems like a narcissist, right? What do you mean he wants all the glory for himself? He won't share his glory with anyone. But don't you see if God were to give anyone or anything more weight than himself, he would be insulting himself because he would be saying, there's some other being, there's some other thing worth more than me. There is some other being that is more deserving of praise than me. And we see just how passionate God is about his glory here in Acts 12. Because Herod did not give God the glory, he was a goner. Who we give glory to is a matter of life and death. Now, seeking glory in and of itself is not a bad thing. Okay, don't worry. You know, we all want to be glorified. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. In fact, the Bible tells us you and I were made for glory. In Isaiah 43, 7, it says, Bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them, meaning you and I were hardwired with a longing to be glorified, to be significant, to know that we matter. And I want you to take a moment to think about everything you do, every decision you make, every regret you have, everything you wish you would have done, everything that keeps you up at night, everything that brings you anxiety. I guarantee you that at the root of it all, you'll see a desire for glory. And I'm not talking about fame, because I think we often equate glory with fame, although we're in LA, so I'm sure there are a lot of us who would love fame too, yeah. But I'm talking about a simple desire to matter. We wanna matter. We all want to matter to our kids. A lot of times when I think about what I do, at the end of my life, I want my kids to say, you were a good dad. You did the best you could for me. Everything, everything you did, I know you did it for us. I want to hear those words. We want to matter to our parents. We want our parents to say, I'm proud of you. You did a great job. We want to matter to our peers and our colleagues. We want them to say what we do matters. We want the world to say that we matter. I mean, social media brought this on in spades. It's basically people going online to say, hey, we matter. We did something. Look at our lives. Look how significant we are. All driven by a desire to matter. When we desire a relationship, 
What is that desire? It's a desire to matter to someone. We want to hear someone tell us, you matter. You're beautiful. You're worthy of love. When you wake up tomorrow morning and you go to work and you open up that laptop and you say, is anything I am about to do, does it matter? When you go and look at a classroom full of students and they're, they're, you're like, how am I going to get through this day? And you're thinking, is what I'm going to do matter? Does what I do matter? If you're a stay-at-home parent, as you're wiping butts at three in the morning and you're wondering, does this matter? You realize that is the question that is on every human heart. That question, according to the Bible, is hardwired into our very being. If God's defining characteristic is his glory and you and I were created in God's image, then it makes sense that you and I would long for glory. So the problem is not our pursuit of glory. It's that we think we can find glory apart from God. It's that we think glory is found in our achievements or in a relationship or in a career, and so we kill ourselves believing that if we can just get that sale, if we can just get married, if we can just have that lifestyle, if we just have kids, we will all find the glory we're all looking for. And you and I may not drop dead the way King Herod dropped dead, but I guarantee you we are killing ourselves in pursuit of glory. Now let me get this straight. God doesn't need our glory. He doesn't need anything from us. He's glorious with or without us. And so when I say we often rob God of his glory, what I'm saying is we rob ourselves of the life we were created to live. And so today, if you feel stuck or anxious or purposeless, one question I want you to ask yourself throughout this sermon is, whose glory am I living for? Because we're all chasing glory. Whose glory am I living for? And there are three ways we steal God's glory that I think we see in our text today. First, we steal God's glory when we take for ourselves that which belongs to God. On several occasions in the book of Acts, Peter and Paul, they're walking around, they're performing miracles, they're healing the sick, people are getting up, getting their demons cast out, and everyone's like, who are you? This must be a God. We must worship them. And immediately, Every time this happened, Peter's like, get up, don't worship me. That's not me, that's him. Only God is worthy of praise. Don't worship me, don't do that. When Cornelius gets on the ground face down and he's like worshiping Peter as a deity, Peter's like, get up, for I am just a man. And yet Herod, we read that when he starts speaking and the people cry out the voice of a God, not of a man, Herod is like, yes, give me the praise. He's basking in it. We all become glory thieves when we start to believe the lie that everything we have is our doing, that it's because we worked hard, that because we're nice people, that we lived good lives because we made good decisions, because we earned it. And the danger of this mindset is this, when you believe that everything you have is your doing, that there's some, if there's something in your mind that says, ah, but I did earn this, it's impossible to live with open hands because everything you have is yours. So you hoard, you take, you get angry when people threaten the things that you have. You don't want to give. 
you live a stingy lifestyle. You will hate those who threaten the things you have. You're constantly comparing yourself to others. You will find yourself an angry, discontent person just like Herod. A guy who had everything and yet had nothing. But when you understand everything I have, the clothes on my back, the food that I eat, the air that I breathe, the parents that I was blessed with, everything that I have is not because of me. Everything I have is a gift of God's grace. Then you live your life with open hands because you're like, I didn't deserve this to begin with. This isn't mine to begin with. I'm playing with house money. So everything I have is extra on top and you learn to live your life with utter gratitude and you're like, how can I give to you? How can I serve you? So that's the first way we steal God's glory. The second way we steal God's glory is when we make ourselves the center of the universe. For Herod, the universe revolved around him. His needs, his preferences, his desires, his agenda his success. Many years ago, before I was a pastor, I uh, did a lot of music for weddings, and I was hired to do music for a wedding. Uh, it was through a referral of a friend, so I didn't even know who the bride and groom were, okay? So I get to the wedding venue, I spot the bride, she was wearing this beautiful white wedding dress, and I go up to her and I say, I introduce myself, hey, I'm Jason, I'm the wedding singer, and she's like, oh, thanks so much for coming. We're so glad you're here. I'm like, great. She says, yeah, I think you can set up over there. So I set up all my stuff, and the wedding's about to start. And the father starts walking the bride down, and I'm very confused because I'm like, that was not the girl I met earlier. Okay, like, who is she? And I realized the girl I met earlier was the bride's sister, Wearing a white dress, okay? Now, don't do that ever, okay? And if you've done that, I mean, no judgment, but shame on you, okay? Shame on you. And I was very confused because on this day that is supposed to be about the bride, I mean, it's about the groom, but we all know it's really about the bride. About the bride, why are you taking attention from the bride? Why are you doing something that would avert our eyes from this, who the center of that party is about? That day is about celebrating the bride, being in awe of the bride, elevating the bride, and somehow you've made it about yourself. And as cringy as that moment sounds, let's be honest, you and I are walking around the world wearing white every single day. The Bible tells us the universe was created for God, by God, that everything is about God for his glory. We just sang it in the song that we sang today. It's, a, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We poured out our, out our praise to you. It's about you. And yet at some point we were like, you know what? I'm going to wear white today. I'm going to make it about me, my needs, my agenda, my comfort, my will, my dreams. And this is why we lose our minds when we don't get something we want, when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to, when things don't go according to our plan. But it's not about us. 
It's about Him. And I guarantee you the biggest shift that you can experience in your life is a posture that goes from glorify my name to glorify your name. I guarantee you if you were to go into every situation instead of glorify my name, glorify your name, it would change everything. Imagine if you went into every fight with your spouse or every fight with a friend and you were about to have that conversation that you've been avoiding and you walked into that conversation and before you walked in, rather than glorify my name, I'm gonna get my needs met, I'm gonna get mine. Imagine if you said glorify your name. What can I do in this moment to bring you glory? Imagine if we walked in on Sunday morning and our mindset was not, what can I get from the service today? How can I feel good today? How can I get my needs met and then go home? What if we walked in and said, glorify your name? How can I please you? How can I worship you? How can I praise you? And when we begin to live with that mindset, life becomes so much more freeing. Failure, it doesn't crush us. Because if your life is about you, failure will crush you. Because you will say, oh my goodness. Like, what is, of, what is gonna come of me? But when life is about God, you're able to say failure. If this failure draws me closer to you, if this failure makes me depend on you more, if this failure makes me humble, then glorify your name. It's so freeing. You approach suffering differently doesn't make suffering any less difficult but when your mindset is glorify your name when your mindset is glorify my name and you suffer in this life it is woe is me why is this happening to me god you must hate me but when your mindset is glorify your name it changes your perspective and you start thinking things like but if this suffering draws me closer to you if it makes me more aware of your presence if it allows me to be a better vessel for your empathy and compassion and care, then so be it. Finally, the third way we steal God's glory is when we become more enamored by the gift than the giver. When we attribute to a person, object, or job that which can only be attributed to God. When we expect something to give us that which only God can give us. The Bible has a word for this. It's called idolatry. It's turning something or someone into a God that was never meant to be a God. You see, the people, I'm not even going to talk about Herod. The people were enamored by Herod. They were enamored by his celebrity, by his influence, by his robes, by his wealth. And so they said, surely this man can save us. All that he has, I want that. And surely all of those things can save us. And so they bowed down and they worshiped him only to realize in a moment how weak this man really was. They watched as everything they placed their hope in rot before their very eyes. When you worship something other than God himself, no matter how secure you think you are, at some point that thing will die. A recession will come. A pandemic will happen. And all the altars we worshiped at will be gone in an instant. And when we have placed our hope in those things, not only do those things die, you know what else dies? We begin to die. Because what more do we have to live for then if the thing we have placed our trust and our identity and significance is gone? 
We have nothing left to bank our lives on. The people of Tyre and Sidon were drawn to Herod's robes. They were drawn to his power. They were drawn to his oration. And they were so drawn to created things that they missed the creator. We live in Los Angeles at the epicenter of celebrity culture where we treat celebrities like gods in the flesh. And we want so deeply to be them. We want to have the life that they offer us. The life that they flaunt to possess what they have. And look, again, wanting success, wanting a promotion, wanting a house, a car, a spouse, kids, these aren't bad things. These are good gifts from, a God, from God who has given to us to be enjoyed. But when these gifts become God's themselves, when we begin to place our trust in our career or in a person and expect these, these things to be our savior and to satisfy our deepest needs, they will always disappoint us because a creative thing could never give us that which only the creator can. You know, my, my wife traveled, been traveling a lot for work these days. Um, she's, she's always flying. And I mean, the first time she took a business trip, um, she felt so guilty leaving the kids. You know, they were still young. And so the first time she went on a business trip, they had a re- kids had a really hard time. She comes back with two stuffies, one for each child, okay? And, you know, they're in, they're in this phase where they love stuffed animals. And so um, she comes back, they run to her, open arms, mommy, we missed you so much. And she's like, I missed you too, look what I got you. And they're like, oh my goodness, thank you so much, mommy, we love it, right? And she loved how much it lit up their faces that the next time she went on a business trip, she got them two stuffies again. And the next time she went, she got them two stuffies again. And something, something started to happen, like about five business trips later. Around five business trips later, she would walk in the door and they would be like, mommy, welcome back. But their eyes weren't on her. They were on the bag. And they were like, good to see you, mom. Right? Now, now, before she goes on a business trip, she doesn't even go. They're like, what stuffies are you going to get us this time? (laughs) They became enamored by the gift more than the giver. This is often our relationship with God. Out of his goodness and his kindness, he gives us the food we eat. He gives us our intellect, our gifts, our friends, our career. And he gives us these things which are so good. And God is so consistent with his gifts because he's a good giver. He's a good father who only wants to give good gifts to his children. And he's so consistent And he keeps giving us these gifts meant to be enjoyed and used for his glory. But often, all of a sudden, somewhere along the line, we become so enamored by the gifts that we turn the gifts into gods and we begin to trust in them to save us and make us whole. We want God's blessings more than we want him. So to recap, all of us were created to reflect God's glory to be living embodiments of his character and his essence. But because of sin, this is what happened with Adam and Eve, right? They said, you know what? I think we can find glory apart from God. I I don't think we need God for glory. And so we began to seek glory and created things rather than the creator. We began to take for ourselves things which belong to God. We began to make our lives about us, my needs, my success, my agenda. And as a result, it's killing us. This is why in a country... That is the wealthiest country in the world. We boast the highest rates of anxiety and depression and suicide rates. It's killing us. 
It's turning, into pe- turning us into people who look like Herod. Looks great on the outside, rage-filled, insecure, bitter on the inside. So the big question is, how do we get back to our purpose to glorify God? How do we become like John the Baptist in John 3, one of my favorite stories? It's like John the Baptist, he's been discipling these people, people following him around his whole life. Jesus comes on the scene. They're like, bye, John. We're going to Jesus now. And one of the rabbis come up to John the Baptist. They're like, aren't you pissed at Jesus? He just took your disciples. And you know what he says? He says, my joy is full, for he must become greater. I must become less. What does it look like for our lives to for that to be the mantra, the posture of our lives. He must become greater and I must become less. And the answer is counterintuitive. The world says you will be glorified when you achieve a certain status or certain quality of life, when you drive a certain car, carry a certain bag, when you finally meet the one or become a powerful CEO. The Bible says you will experience the fullness of God's glory, not in your strength, but in your weakness. When you become needy and helpless, when you humble yourself, that is the moment you will begin to see God for who he is. One of the things I find really fascinating is when you read the Old Testament, whenever God's glory appears, it doesn't appear to strong people. When God's glory appeared to Moses at the burning bush, it wasn't at the prime of Moses' career. He was 80 years old. He thought his life was over, and he was in the desert tending sheep for his father-in-law. When the glory of God appeared to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, it wasn't when Israel was at its height. It says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. The year everything went bad, I saw the Lord. In the year we lost our beloved, most longest reigning king, I saw the glory of God. And when the glory of God appeared in human flesh, it was not on chariots, it was not on thrones, it was not with robes made of silver. God's glory shows up as a lowly carpenter, a homeless nomad whose death was not a picture of triumph or strength, but of weakness and humiliation. The Savior of the world hanging on a Roman cross. And it is in this cross that we find our glory. It is in this cross that you and I discover our identity, our purpose. We find acceptance and love and freedom. It is in this cross that you and I are glorified. Romans 8.30 says, and those he predestined, he also called, those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he glorified. You want to be somebody? You want to matter? You want your life to carry weight and significance and purpose? Look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ, where the most glorious being in the universe took off glory. Why? So that you and I would know that we matter that we are a somebody to the creator of the universe so that you and I would experience the fullness of God's unconditional love for us. God's glory always appears in weakness. And this is exactly what happens in Acts 12. Right after the people, King, right after the people watch King Herod eaten by worms, Luke includes this one-liner mic drop. 
At the end, he says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 12 opens with Herod in power and Peter in prison. Acts 12 ends with Herod dead and the word of God increasing and multiplying. At the very moment, everyone thought the church was finished because its leaders were dead or in prison. That's when we saw the glory of God on full display. And so let me speak to those of you in the room who are going through a difficult season in your life who are feeling helpless, feeling suffocated, or you feel attacked on every side, or you feel worthless, I'm excited for you. Because often in the Bible, it's not in strength when God's glory appears. It's in our weakness. How will you ever know God is truly in control of your life unless things get out of control sometimes? How will you ever know God is a good provider unless you go through seasons of your life when you have to depend on his provision every single day of your life, how will you know Jesus is worth everything unless you go through seasons when Jesus is all you have? This is why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, therefore will I rather glory in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so to end, let me ask a question. For whose glory will you live? today will you live for your name your reputation your agenda or will you live for his name for his reputation his agenda because there's so much God wants to show you and do through you if we would just get out of the way I'm going to give everyone a homework assignment and then we'll close homework assignment this week August 30th is a full moon On August 30th, so I think that's Wednesday, I want you to go outside at night, and hopefully the sky is clear, and I want you to see the full moon. If you have kids, take your kids out with you and look at the full moon. And one of the things people don't realize is full moons, they are, when you look at a full moon lighting up the night sky, there are a few things in life that are more beautiful than that. But you know what's very interesting? A moon doesn't actually have any light of its own. When a full moon lights up the sky, it is simply a reflection off the sun. And you know when you see a half moon or a quarter moon or a sliver of a moon, it's not because the sun stops shining, right? It's because the earth is in the way. The earth is in the way. The sun is always shining its glory, but the earth often gets in the way, and we don't get to see the full picture of it. This is who we are called to be. The moon is at its fullest, at its most beautiful, when the earth gets out of the way. The paradox of life is that you and I are most glorious when we get out of the way and we begin to reflect the radiant light of the sun. Amen? Let's pray. I want to give us a moment to just let those words sink in, asking the question, what have we ascribed glory to? Or what are the things in our lives that we think, "Ah, if we just had that, then I wouldn't matter. Then my life would have significance. Then my life would carry weight. 
And as we identify those things, maybe we can take a moment and allow ourselves to look up at the face of God who says, you do matter. You're created in my image. You're my child. I love you. Before you did anything, before you proved your worth to anyone, I love you simply for existing. Let's let that truth sink in. Heavenly Father, I think about the story in the book of Exodus when God says to Moses, you can have anything you want. What do you want? And he says, show me your glory. Show me the fullness of who you are. Because Moses understood that if he could just see that, if he could just get a glimpse of your glory, everything else in life would make sense. Show us your glory, Lord. Show us your face. God, would forgive us for ascribing glory to created things, for seeking glory apart from you. Help us to come back to the source of all love and all joy and all beauty. Help us to come back to the place where we find home. where we realize that we do matter to the creator of the universe. Thank you for this word today. We entrust our lives into your good, sovereign hands. In Jesus' name, amen.